Last week in the service, I went a little past 12, I think. This week, Joe cut down the number of songs that we sang. I wonder if he's trying to give me a hint about something that we need to do today. Um, We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 1 in in just a moment. That's where we're going to be looking at this morning. When I was a kid, there was a, uh, a pond, or there is a pond near the house that I grew up in. And as kids, we, of course, we always went down there to play, um, throw rocks in the water, look for snakes, stuff along those lines that little boys do. But what we liked best was wintertime because it was a pretty shallow pond, and so it didn't have to get really cold before it froze a little bit. And then we would get along the edges and we would skate around and stuff like that, see how far we could walk out without, before we started hearing the ice crack. And uh, we knew that it never really got cold enough in Oklahoma for it to freeze fully, so we never went way out into the middle. We were trying to be careful. But we would always go out there and we would do that. One day in the winter we were out there and we were skating around and throwing rocks in the middle and doing all those kind of things. And my mom hollered at me to come home. So when I got home, she told me that she was going into town to do something and wanted me to stay away from the pond and not go down there while she was gone. I said, okay. And she took off. And we lived about five miles outside of town. So a trip to town always took a little bit of time, um, depending on where you were. And so she was gone and the day was wearing on and and the pond was calling to me. You know, it was calling for me to come and not to burn daylight. And so I got to thinking. And what mom had said was she didn't want me to get on the pond. Right. And and really, I think that's what she meant. That's what she wanted. That was what was most important. You know, she was more concerned about me getting on the pond and falling in and her not being there to help. It, It wasn't so much me going to the pond. It was getting on the pond. Right? And I, the longer I thought about that, the more sense that began to make. Surely that was what she meant by what she said. Now, I don't know if you've, some of you know my mom and have met her, but Janice Ross is pretty plain spoken. She says what she means and she means what she says. She never tries to, to hide anything. So deep down, I don't think I ever really believed what I was saying. But daylight was, the sun was starting to set and things were getting over. And so I convinced myself that all that mattered was that I didn't get on the pond. So I went down to the pond and I was throwing rocks and I was along the edge and I wasn't getting on it. And things went pretty well for about the first 10 minutes. And then I saw a familiar blue car driving by with what appeared to be a very angry lady staring out the window, looking at me at that time. And so I I rushed home and, and mom was furious. And so I was trying to explain to her, right? Okay, here's what you said, but here's what you meant. You just I I didn't get on the pond. I went down there, but I didn't get on the pond. That's all you were really concerned about was me not getting on the pond. And I kind of sat back and was waiting on her to realize how genius I was. I mean, I had figured out what she meant from what she said. I had I had obeyed her intention. uh, And and just so I was waiting for that, you know, good, good job. That was great. I'm proud of you, son. But mom's unreasonable at times. And so that wasn't the response that she had towards that. I thought about that as I was studying the passage for this week, because often we do the same sort of things. Or have you ever convinced yourself that someone meant something that they didn't mean? Right. It was they they said one thing, but you convinced yourself it meant something entirely different. I think probably we have all done that, maybe in a negative way or maybe in a more positive way. I, I think, though, the way we do it most often is in relation to what God has said about sin. You know, God has spoken actually pretty clearly about sin and what it does to us and why we're not to take part in it. 
And yet, many times as believers, what we do is we begin to to try to figure out what God actually meant by what He said. And, And the more that we think about it, and the more that we begin to work on it, the more we become convinced that God didn't actually mean what He said. Instead, He meant something just a little bit different. And what we can do is we can actually get really creative with our explanations about why God didn't mean what He said about this particular sin. And and the longer we go on with this, and the longer we think about that, the more convinced we become that we're right. And so time can go on, and we can, with a straight face, we can explain why what we're doing, that despite the fact that the Bible says don't do it, we can explain why we're doing it, why God's okay with it, and why, you know, the Bible doesn't mean what it clearly said. But God knows our hearts, and He knows that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, And so he wrote in the New Testament multiple times, do not be deceived. And always that was in connection to the consequences of sin in the life of a person. Do not be deceived. There are consequences. There are things that happen to us and in us because of our sin. But we're not the first generation of people to to have this problem. The Israelites in the Old Testament, they had a problem like that as well. They convinced themselves that God wasn't as concerned about their sin as He said He was. They convinced themselves that He didn't mean what He had clearly said. And we're going to look at what God said to them in that time. To open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10 is where we're going to start at today. And I believe that is on page 571, 517. In your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 1 and 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and give ears to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, let me just say, anytime God addresses His people and calls them the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know things are bad. And that's what he's doing. Their sin is such that they are the same in his sight as Sodom and Gomorrah was. So let that sink in as we go through here. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this of your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meetings. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear you. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Put away the cling of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do justice. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
title of the message this morning is The Danger of Self-Deception. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we come today with a desire to learn from you, a desire to hear from your word, to let your spirit work in our lives and reveal things to us that need to be addressed. Father, we always want to, to be progressing and becoming more and more like Jesus. And so, God, we know that for that to happen, changes have to occur. Lord, there has to be a renewal of our mind. There has to be a transforming of our lives. And we need you to do this today in our midst. Father, let your Holy Spirit come and take this word and, and convict us where we need it. Lord, if we are living as the Israelites did, defending our sin, excusing it and finding ways to, that it's OK, God, bring your word to bear on our hearts and, and bring great conviction into our lives. Let your Holy Spirit take your word and, and let it be a light that would dispel the darkness that's there, that we could see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let your Holy Spirit empower your word to be a fire that would burn away the junk from our lives, that we would be pure vessels for Jesus. Father, let your Holy Spirit empower the word to be a hammer that would knock down strongholds that we have built up so that our thoughts could be brought captive to the obedience of Christ. God, work in our lives today and draw us to you as we leave here today. Let us leave knowing that we are closer to you than we have ever been. Let us leave here today knowing that you are at work in our hearts, that you are at work in our lives, and that you are calling to us to come and to be cleansed and to know you, to love you, to experience you in our lives. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me a clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your words and your ways for your glory. We ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the book of Isaiah was written at a time like most of the books of the Old Testament, particularly the prophets. It was living at a time when Israel was living in rebellion against God. Now, their rebellion, God addresses in the first chapter. He starts off by dealing with their, their national sins and explaining how their sins have cut them off from God and kept Him from working on their behalf. Now, one of the things that I have often found interesting as I have read through the Old Testament is that while it was not unique for Israel to rebel against God, to fall away, what I found interesting is that Israel almost never fully stopped obeying God, right? It wasn't, I mean, very rarely did they just completely abandon all forms of worship to God. Typically, what they did was they still went to the temple on the days that they were supposed to. But they, they typically still made offerings for sin and for things at, at, the, at the appointed times. They, they typically kept some of the holy days and some of the fast. They typically gave some of the tithes and some of the offerings. They typically picked and chose what parts of the law they would obey and what parts that they wouldn't. But while they were doing these things that, that were right and were what God has commanded, they did other stuff as well. Right? So, so while they would, would worship God, they might also worship Baal. And while they may offer sacrifices to God, they didn't offer the best of their flocks like God had said. Instead, they brought the lame and the blind, the sick and the diseased. They, they may have obeyed some of the law, but there was other parts of it. And in our text, we talked about, he said, uh, to learn justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Right. So they may do some of the things the law said, but they didn't care 
for those that had needs. They didn't care for the powerless in their communities. They they didn't do all of it. And they did some, but they didn't do all. And they always seemed to be surprised when God wasn't accepting of this. They always seemed to be surprised that God wouldn't accept the blind and the lame from their flocks. They, they seemed to be surprised that it wasn't good enough for God that they obeyed Him partially. They, they seemed to be surprised that God wanted them to do everything He had commanded and not just some. And the reason they were surprised is they had deceived themselves. They had deceived themselves into thinking that their sin was okay. They had deceived themselves into thinking that that as long as they gave something to God, that was good, right? I mean, at least they were thinking of God. Surely God counted that. Some of them would even repent. right? They would make an offering for sin, but but they weren't ever really going to turn from their sin. They, They convinced themselves that as long as they said the right words, and as long as they offered the right sacrifice, they didn't have to mean it. And they didn't have to intend on living differently. All they had to do was go through these external motions. And as long as they did these external things, and usually stuff that was connected with their Jewish identity, as long as they did that, God would be thrilled at them. God would be okay with what they were doing. And yet, God never was. He was never Okay with their partial obedience. He was never okay with their lukewarm serving. He was never okay with offering the junk that they had as sacrifices to him. He was never okay with that. And what we learn from the Israelites in this is that the danger of self-deception is that I minimize my sin. I minimize the danger of my sin. I minimize the damages of my sin. I minimize the impact sin will have upon my life and upon my relationship with God. And in this passage, God tells us three ways that sin affects us. And these three ways are important for us to understand so that we don't deceive ourselves and minimize what sin does. The first is, That sin makes my sacrifices worthless. Sin makes my sacrifices worthless. In the army, when I was at Fort Campbell, our squad leader, when I first arrived, he had really high standards for what he expected from the the dudes in his squad. The army called for a uniform that wasn't necessarily wrinkled, for boots that were brush-shined, and for hair that was off the ears and, and stuff like that. But what he expected was spit-shine boots. What he expected was a starched uniform. He expected that we would have a high and tight for our haircut. He expected higher standards than the army did uh, from us. But for the most part, we were okay with it because he, whatever standard he set for us, he, he had a little bit higher than what we had. He always met or exceeded his own standards. But there was one guy in our squad who that just, he just refused to do these things. He kept his hair just a little bit longer than it was supposed to. He come to, When he would come down, he would come down with a uniform that it looked like he pulled it straight out of his duffel bag. 
I mean, it was just crinkledy and wrinkledy. He, he came with his boots and it looked like he had melted a Hershey bar on it and just kind of smudged it around. And it was terrible. And when you called him on it and you were to say, what's up? What are you doing? He would begin then to point to all of the other stuff that he did well. Well, he was an expert shot with his machine gun. Well, I scored a 300 on my PT test, which is a perfect score. Well, I, I did this and I did that. And what he thought in his mind was, he thought that the good stuff that he did over here, it would offset the bad stuff that he did right here. But the reality was, the bad stuff that he did here, it took away from all of the good stuff that he did. He could have been a tremendous soldier, but he was largely considered to be a dirtbag because of the bad stuff that he did. It didn't enhance it. It didn't enhance the bad. It took away from the good. And that is what typically people do in regard to sin. That's what the Israelites had done. They began to rectify or to, to realize in their mind, to say in their mind, well, yeah, we're not doing everything God had said, but we're offering these sacrifices. And we're bringing to God the sacrifices that He demands on the days that He expects it. And we're doing all of that. Therefore, God is going to look at this other stuff and say, well, that's not so bad because you're doing this. And God addresses that mindset here. And I want you to, to really think about what He's saying. First, in verse 10, like I mentioned, He calls His people Sodom and Gomorrah. That's bad. I mean, that is, that is a terrible thing. For God to say to His people. And if I was being salty today, I'd say that would be like calling somebody from Oklahoma text. But I'm not, so I won't do that. But notice what He says. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to Me, says the Lord. So they're offering all these sacrifices. And, and God's wording in verse 10 is basically, what's the point of offering these sacrifices? Why are you bringing them? Right? You're, you're not living for me outside of, the, outside of church, so to speak. So why even bother? This reminded me of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 6. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do the things that I say? It's a very similar idea. What is the point of bringing me these sacrifices? You're not going to live for me outside of this hour a day on the Sabbath that you're bringing the sacrifice. But even that is not... Enough. He goes further. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. Right? I have had enough. Now, if you have read the Old Testament, you know that the sacrificial system, this was a huge part of what they were. They offered sacrifices for everything. I mean, there was no end. Sacrifices for sin, sacrifices on holy days, free will offerings, free will sacrifices, sacrifice. I mean, there was just stuff all the time. And what God has said here is, I've had enough. No more. No more. Don't bring me any more of the sacrifices that you're bringing me. Now, it's not because the sacrificial system was over. And it's not because it wasn't still got what God wanted from them. It's because of their life. Their life was so horrendous outside of that church experience that God was like, I would rather you just not bring them anymore. Just, I have had all I want from you in that. I do not delight in the blood of the bulls, the lambs, or of the goats. Again, this is a huge thing. In the book of Leviticus, frequently, 
When the sacrifices were made, God delighted in their sacrifices. God was meant to delight in their sacrifices. That was one of the reasons they were supposed to make them is because God would be delighted. God would be pleased with them. And God says, I'm not. I'm not pleased with not a sacrifice one that you're making. I don't like them. I don't want you to make them. I wish you would stop. Why do you continue? When you come to appear before me. Now, this is important, too. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand? Now, notice this last statement to trample my courts. When they brought these sacrifices and they were living in sin and they weren't going to turn from it, it was God called it trampling his courts in, in essence. It carried with it the idea of defiling it. Their presence defiled his temple. Their presence made it unclean almost because of the way that because of not because of their actions, but their attitude. Yes, they were bringing the sacrifice, but they were going to go right back out and worship Baal. They were going to go offer this to God. Oh, Jehovah, we love you. And then they were going to go out and go, oh, Baal, we love you, too. And God said, you're defiling my temple. You're trampling it down. You're ruining it by doing this. Bring no more futile, worthless. No more worthless sacrifices. Now, now he's not telling them not to genuinely make sacrifices. Right? We're going to get to the end and he's going to tell them to come and to be cleansed. But don't make the worthless sacrifices. Don't come in here and act like you're my people when you're going to go out there and live like you're not my people. Don't come in here and act like you're devoted to me when you're going to go out there and live like you're not devoted to me. Don't come in here and pretend to worship me when you're going to go out there and worship another God. Quit bringing the useless, worthless, empty sacrifices to me. Now, the incense was often seen as a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. Again, how it's described in Leviticus. Notice what it said here. Incense is an abomination to me. An abomination. And that is huge. And I think I've gotten ahead of myself. We'll come back to that. They made all of these sacrifices. They made all of these sacrifices to God. And God wanted them to stop. He, he felt that their sacrifices were, were useless to Him. Okay, yeah, verse 13. Feudal sacrifices, the incense is an abomination. Now, I want to mention the incense. Because it was meant to be a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto the Lord. But instead of being a sweet-smelling sacrifice, it was an abomination. And the word abomination, it, it, in essence, it carries with it the idea of making God sick. Often, when we get into the Old Testament stuff, people point out about homosexuality from the Old Testament, what it says. And it talks about homosexuality being an abomination unto the Lord. It's the same word. Right? So that tells you how seriously this is. It was an abomination. It made God sick that they were offering these sacrifices to Him. This is the way God felt about all of the sacrifices that they were making to Him. Because of the life they lived outside. Outside, they had no concern for God and His will or His ways or His covenant. 
But then they would come inside and they would put on a happy face and they would pretend to be the people of God and they would offer these sacrifices. And their idea was, look, God, sure, out there we're worshiping Baal and sure, out there we're cheating on our spouses and sure, out there we're oppressing the fatherless and sure, out there we're not helping the widows like we should. But look at what we did in here, God. Judge us and and love us because of this, but ignore all of that out there. And instead of all of this making all of that okay, all of that made all of this completely worthless in God's sight. Again, if you've read the Old Testament, you know how deeply entrenched this sacrificial system was. For God to say that their sacrifices were worthless, and an abomination, and that he wishes they would stop because they disgusted him. That's huge. So why does God take take it so seriously? I mean, why is it that what we do out there can defile what we do in here as a, as a sacrifice to the Lord? I think that Romans 12, 1 from the NIV gives us the... Or, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Good grief. Um... See, we're going on vacation today, so my mind's already gone there. Um, what they found is God wasn't okay with their half-hearted ways, but they weren't the first people to, act to find that out. The first king of Israel, he did the same sort of thing. God told him to go kill the Amalekites and to kill them all and all of their livestock. And he went out and he killed all of the Amalekites but the king. And he killed all of the livestock, but the very best. Now, he didn't do it completely. He did it mostly. But he had a good reason for it. He was going to bring them as an offering. See, in their day, what you would do is after you conquered a nation, the conquering king would ride into town with the defeated king being pulled on a rope behind him. And it showed the greatness of the king and the greatness of their God. And then they would take the best of the flocks of the conquered nation and they would offer them as a sacrifice to their God to show their God had given them victory. And so what he was doing was he was going to bring Agag into the city so that people would say, great is the Lord, great is the Lord. He was going to offer those the best of their animals as a sacrifice to God so that people would say, great is the Lord. And all in all, that sounds great, doesn't it? Except that's not what God told him to do. And when God sent Samuel to bring a message to him about it, here's what he said. Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Again, I want to stop there. This is still Old Testament times. So the sacrificial system that is central to everything that they do in their worship and their service to God. And God says, sacrifice is not nearly as good as plain and simple obedience. Right. To heed better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as the iniquity of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. So all of the... If we live lives of rebellion against God... We know what He has said, but we choose not to do it. Anything that we do else doesn't make our rebellion okay. Instead, our rebellion defiles everything else that we do. I can't say, okay, I, I go to church 
and I, I give and, you know, I don't cuss, but, you know, I cheat on my spouse. But God, because I do all this other stuff, God's going to be OK with it. It doesn't work that way. Right. We don't even if we say, you know what, I, I'm going to here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm not really going to live for God in this area. I'm going to be sexually impure. But to make up for that, I'm going to give 20 percent as a tithe instead of 10 percent. I'm going to fast three times in a week. I'm going to wear amber, a breadcrumb and fish T-shirt instead of an amber crumbie and finch. I'm going to have a God pod instead of an I'm going to do all of this stuff, but I'm still going to do this. God says that's still worthless. Everything that we do, worthless because of our refusal to submit our lives to Him over here. And, and the thing is, but obey is better than sacrifice. And what I like about the way that it's worded there, obedience, that's what God has said. Sacrifice, that's what Samuel or Saul came up with on his own to do. So the key truth in this is there is never anything we'll come up with on our own that will please God more than doing just simply what he has said to do. If God has said, don't do it, there is no amount of other stuff we can do on our own that we make up that is going to make that okay. If God has said to do it, there is no amount of other stuff we can do that will make our not doing it okay. When we are willfully living in rebellion against God in one area of our life, it completely makes everything else we're doing in our service to God worthless. Now, I'm not talking about struggle with my sinful nature and fail, repent and move on. I'm talking about living in rebellion. I know what God has said. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to bring my mouth under submission to the Word of God. I'm not going to bring my thought life into control. I'm not going to possess my vessel in honor and holiness like the Bible has said. Instead, I'm going to do what I want to do over here. And all of this other stuff will make up for it. It's not the way it works. This area that I'm rebelling, that I'm not bringing submission, it makes everything else I do for God completely worthless. That's huge. And it's self-deception. To think anything else. Secondly, sin makes my, my worship meaningless. In verse 13, it goes on to say, The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Now, this is all of these were basically holy days. But they came together to worship the Lord. And the picture of I cannot endure iniquity, it's not just I can't endure sin in general. It's basically the iniquity of your holy days is what he's talking about. So what they did was they might have, let's say today was the, one of the holy days. Well, the day before they would go have their high feast to, to Baal and they would worship Baal. Oh, Baal, you are great. We love you. Whoa. And then they would come in the next day and they would worship God. Oh, oh, God, we love you. We worship you, God. We want you to be, you know, we want to live for you. And that gathering, even though they were going to leave there and then still go worship Bell again, that was like iniquity. It was like sin. That, that gathering was sin. And I think the sin was basically like hypocrisy, lies. They didn't mean the words that they said. I mean, they never had any intention of actually living for God alone. They never had any intention of doing what God wanted them to do. It was just... 
They were singing it because they were supposed to. They were saying it because they were supposed to. There was no meaning in it. There was no heart in it. There was no anything that was valuable or important in their lives. It was just the right words at the right time that we're supposed to say. God said, I just can't bear the iniquity of that sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Hates. And that's bad, right? I mean, that, that's a bad thing when God hates something we're doing and we're at least nominally doing it for Him. Again, the problem, it was that it was all fake. It wasn't really, they weren't really worshiping God. They were just going through the motions and God hated that. God hated what they were doing. They are a trouble to me. And I'm weary of bearing them. He was just tired, tired of hearing them sing. Tired of hearing them say these words. In Amos, I believe it's in Amos, in like the New Living Translation, it says God was sick to death of hearing them worship Him in song. And it's because of the life they lived outside. Because their lives were not for Him. Their lives were not even close to being for Him. Them singing... He hated it. He despised it. And that's the way he feels here. God isn't nearly as concerned with how good we can sing as he is with whether or not what we sing matches up with the way we live. One of my favorite songs is by a group named Casting Crown and it's called Life Song. And here's a part of what it says. Empty hands held high, such small sacrifice. If not joined with my life, I sing in vain tonight. May the words I say and the things I do make my life song sing, bring a smile to you. Right? Think about it. Empty hands, that's the singing and worship. That's a small sacrifice. But if not joined with my life, it's worthless. It's exactly what God is saying here in Isaiah. They're saying all the right things. Their mouths are professing love for God. Their mouths are worshiping Him and singing the Psalms and doing all of those things. But because their hearts are not close to them, their lives are not in sync. They say it's just in vain, but God says it's iniquity. I hate it. It troubles me. I'm tired of listening to it. Why does God take our worship that seriously? I mean, why isn't it enough that I just sing loud and I sing happily? Why does my life have to be joined for it to be valuable to God? This is where Romans says, I I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, as holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. I like that last phrase. Your spiritual act of worship. See, the reason God takes their singing so seriously is worship isn't just singing. Worship is a life. The life we live is meant to be lived as an offering, as a sacrifice, as a worship of God. So you see, there's not a part of our lives tomorrow, today. There's not an area of our lives where we go And that life is not meant to be lived as a spiritual act of worship. We're going to go to maybe restaurants today. How we act in that restaurant is a spiritual act of worship. It's meant to be. 
Tomorrow, you go to the job. How you act on the job is meant to be a spiritual act of worship. You're going to deal with people that get on your nerves this week. How you deal with them is meant to be a spiritual act of worship. Every area of our lives is meant to be lived in submission to God because we love Him, because He is great, and He is worthy of our praise, and He is worthy of our devotion. The worship God wants isn't necessarily just the songs that we sing. It is the life that we live. Worship is basically declaring someone's worth. So, I declare God's worth by the life I live. Let me ask you a question. Look at the last week and how you lived. What did that say about what God was worth to you in your life? What did your attitude say about what God was worth in your life? What did your priorities say about what God is worth in your life? What did your actions say about what God is worth in your life? What did your reactions to stressors say about what God was worth in your life? Every aspect of our lives, not just the songs, are meant to be acts of worship to our great and our awesome and our wonderful God. And when I'm not living as a living sacrifice, and I'm not even trying to declare His worth in my life, it is a waste of time to come in here and sing His praises. His attitude toward it isn't, well, at least it's pretty. At least they're happy. At least they're loud. It's, I can't endure it. My soul hates it. It's a trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing it. And to think that our worship is anything else when we live in rebellion. It's just self-delusion. Self-deception. And then finally, sin, it makes my prayers powerless. Sin makes our sacrifices worthless. It makes our worship meaningless. And it makes my prayers powerless. God says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. The picture is of them praying and asking God to do stuff. And God ignoring them. It's pretty rough, right? God ignoring their prayers. But that's the picture. You make many prayers, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to hide my eyes. It's a picture of turning away and intentionally not listening. It's not that they don't reach and he can't hear. It's that he is intentionally ignoring their prayers because of the life they live. When I was first out of the army, I was in a Sunday school class. And one Sunday school class was on the topic of prayer. And my Sunday school teacher said that the, the first prayer that God ever hears or ever listens to for an unbeliever is a prayer of salvation when they cry out to Jesus to save them. And I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. I mean, no, everybody can pray and expect that God's going to hear no matter what. So I was waiting on some of the other people in my class to kind of rebuke the teacher and set him straight. Uh, and they didn't. They, they all agreed. So I sat in class just thinking to myself, people are all crazy. Right? So when I go home after I go to eat lunch with my mom and dad. My mom and dad were, they were as close to Bible scholars as I ever knew. So 
I casually brought it up. Here's what they said in Sunday school. They said that God doesn't hear the prayers of the unbeliever. And that even as a believer, our, our lives, our sin, can hinder and keep God from hearing and answering our prayers. What do you think about that? Right? And I'm expecting, that's crazy talk. Those people are wrong. And then, it's like I was in bizarro world as mom and dad agreed with my Sunday school teacher. And, and I, I looked and I said, no, that's not right. They said, yeah. I said, oh, there's no way. I mean, okay, I'll, I'll grant you that maybe someone who's not a believer that prays, maybe that's that first prayer. Right? I, I get that. I, I don't know that I agree with it, but I'll, I'll give you that one. But to say that a believer can, that their lifestyle can hinder their prayers, no way. No way, Mom. No way. And, and they said the, the most awful words they could ever say to me when we had these sort of discussions. What does the Bible say? I don't know what the Bible says, but I'm pretty sure it can't say that. That's crazy. So I began to study. And as I began to study, I found verses like this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Israel is suffering. They're crying out to God to deliver them. But they're not repenting. They're not turning from their sin. They're not trying to live for God and God's answer. And they're beginning to think, maybe God, maybe God can't hear prayers anymore. Maybe God's not powerful enough to deliver us anymore. And God's message is, I'm just as strong as I always have been. I'm ignoring you because of your sin. I will not deliver you while you're living in rebellion against me. I was horrified. Maybe it's just a couple of different verses. So then I studied some more and I found this. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Now regard iniquity. Even worse than doing sin. Regard iniquity carries with it the idea of cherishing sin. Some translations even say that. The picture there is, if I cherish my sin in my heart, I secretly love it. And I just can't wait to do it. The Lord will not hear. That's horrifying. Okay, well, that's Old Testament though, right? I mean, the Old Testament and the New Testament, things are different. I mean, when I confess my sin, I don't kill a goat to do it. So the New Testament's different. But sadly, I found this verse. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, the picture is that of a conversation. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. If we were talking, and I looked you right in the eye, you'd think you'd be sure I was listening, right? Yes, that's right. And that's the way we know somebody's actually paying attention is when they make eye contact and they look us in the eye. That's the picture. Those who are righteous, righteous by faith, living for Jesus, when they pray, it's like God looking them right in the eye. Yeah, I'm listening. My ears open to you. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, you're talking and I go, what's that say to you? I'm not paying attention. That's the picture. When we live for the Lord, we're living for Him. We're trying our best. We're doing what we can. He's looking there right at us. He's listening. One of the places in the 
Old Testament, it refers to him bowing down. Just the picture of coming down to our level to listen. But the face of the Lord is against when we live in rebellion against him. We're not going to bring our lives into submission. We're not trying. Again, keep in mind, this is I'm not even really trying to live for Jesus. I don't I'm just doing my own thing. But, oh, God, help me in this problem right here. Instead of finding God facing us and making eye contact, we we get the back of the head. It's not that he can't hear. And to me, this is a, a huge thing. It's not that he can't hear like physically unable. It's that he chooses not to hear. He chooses to ignore us. We ignore him. We ignore his word. He ignores our prayers. That's in the Proverbs. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture. It is that sin hinders our prayers. I can live in such a way that what should be a powerful and meaningful part of my life becomes powerless and empty. And that's, again, that's, that's bad. Now, this is a we, we begin to think, well, that can't be right. But that's what and I just picked a few. I mean, I had initially like six or eight verses. I just picked a few. There's a lot. Our sin, living in sin and rebellion, it makes our prayers powerless. And to believe anything different, it's nothing but self-deception. Now, this is a hard message, right? I mean, this isn't your, hey, feel good about yourself Go on and be happy kind of message. But I'm not going to leave it at a bad point because while God was hard on them here, this isn't what he wanted from them. And it's not what he wants from us. God, God does not want. God doesn't want our sacrifices to be worthless. He wants the stuff that we do for him to be meaningful and powerful. God doesn't want our worship to be meaningless. He wants it to be a time where we draw close to Him. We bring glory to His name. God doesn't want our prayers to be powerless. He wants our prayer life to demonstrate His greatness and His goodness in the world. But sin, it ruins all of that. But God didn't end it with just, you've got got sin, good luck. In verse 18, He says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crim- red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But God is willing and God is able to fix all of that. He's willing to take away our sin, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But there has, there's something from us that's required. It is required of us that we confess our sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word cleanse is the same idea as being made white as snow. Now, confession is an interesting thing. Because confession in the Bible, it's saying the same thing. Right? So, I can't confess my sin and say, well, I wouldn't have been a jerk if Jeff wasn't a bigger jerk. God says, no, that doesn't count. See, to say the same thing about our sin that God says is what we have to do. And here's what God says. God says your sin is always your fault. Always. No matter what anyone else does or how they act, how you react is totally on you. Same with me. God says 
that your sin is always serious. Right? My sin is every bit as bad as anyone else's in the world. I don't get to say, well, it's not as bad as what Tiger Woods is doing. I mean, it's not as bad as what this corrupt politician is doing. Nope. My sin is bad. And God says that my sin and your sin is against Him. All sin is ultimately against God. Because God is the lawgiver. God is the one who has said, thou shalt or thou shalt not. And so when I say, yes, God, you said thou shalt not, but I'm going to shall anyway. What I'm telling God is, I don't need what you have to say. You, you, you've got no, no right to rule over my life. And so every sin is always against God. It doesn't matter who, what other person is involved. But again, if I cuss Jeff out because I get mad at him, I have sinned against Jeff. But I've sinned against God in the process. Every sin is always against God. And so when I confess my sin, if I'm not saying those things about my sin like God is, there's no promise of forgiveness. Forgiveness comes when we truly confess. Forgiveness comes when we repent and we turn from it. I mean, look at even what he says in this passage. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Verse 19. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The words are important. But the words are important only if they really come from the heart. I'm truly wanting to turn from my sin. I truly want to get away from it. I want to do what God says. There is forgiveness. There is grace that is greater than all of my sin. But if I am not truly seeking to live for Jesus, I just want to say the words so that maybe he won't break my leg or bring some sort of bad thing upon me. It's meaningless. It's worthless. It's powerless. And it's self-deception to think anything else. Today the Lord calls to all of us. Come and let us reason together. If there is sin in your life and rebellion, I can, I can fix it. I can cleanse it. I can wash it away. I can make you new. But come with confession. Come in repentance. Come seeking to do my will above all else. What do you need to do this morning? Let's all.